Glance at the Movies, a podcast where we rant about our favourite cult and lesser known films and try, and fail, not to bitch about critics in Alien 3. I'm one of your hosts and jack-of-all-trades mono, and staring into the sun for way longer than recommended is my co-host and master of none, Kira. It makes the pretty sparkles! <laughs> yeah, we figured it's about time we covered a jack-of-all-trades director, so today we're looking at Danny Boyle's 2007 sci-fi offering, Sunshine. With fantastic writing, fantastic directing, excellent visuals, fantastic cast as well. Beautiful score. Yeah, 15 years on, this film does seem to have been forgotten a bit. It does, I think. And we we won't stand for that. Down with that kind of thing. Careful now. I think it was very much eclipsed by the powerhouse that was Slumdog Millionaire, which did come out in 2008 and kind of eclipsed this. Whereas there had always kind of been a bit more time between Danny Boyle films. Yeah, and in, in in terms of his films, this is sandwiched between uh, 28 Days Later and Slumdog Millionaire, which are yeah. both way bigger films. Yeah. I've never seen Slumdog Millionaire because it's not my bag. No, I've heard really good things about it. I've never watched it. Um, again, not my cup of tea at but all. But 28 that's... Days Later, yes. fucking love. <laughs> and, and would have probably covered today only for the fact that we did a zombie film last week. <laughs> and everybody knows 28 Days Later. Yeah, Fast but, Zombies. But it's the it's the movie that gave the world Fast Zombies. Um, What year was 28 Days Later? Uh, 2002. Uh, Alright, cool. So yeah, it was because Zack Snyder's uh, Dawn of the Dead has Fast Zombies as well. Yeah. That was 2004. It also has the brilliant scene with the rats running in the tunnel. Yeah, but we're not running doing... Running away from things. I love it. It's we're not amazing. doing 28 Days no, Later today. Not. We're doing Sunshine. Yeah. His lesser known but equally excellent sci-fi film. Yeah. And it is a really, really good cast. It's a brilliant like, cast. And 15 years on, most of them still are really big names. Like Killian Murphy, still a really big name. Chris Evans, obviously still a really big name. <laughs> um, now, no, in his fairness, Chris Evans wouldn't have been as well known at this point. He had been in The oh, Fantastic Four yeah, as was, Johnny Flay. <laughs> yeah, he was... He and was, he'd been in Not Another Teen Movie, which if you've never seen it, go watch it. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, this... this uh, I. I don't know that it would have been one of his first serious roles but probably one of his first big serious roles yeah where he would have been more the straight guy because all the other characters he's kind Mm. of portrayed up to that point that I'm aware of that I've seen are that kind of cheeky chappy Mm. and he's fucking amazing in this oh he is like I mean if you think he's he's good in Snowpiercer he's equally good in this he's really really good but yeah there's a Fucking fantastic cast. Uh, the only thing that I, I, I couldn't get around was skinny Benedict Wong. He just looks so young and weedy and skinny. <laughs> you didn't even realise it was him. I'd forgotten. Well, I'd forgotten he was in it. I'd completely yeah. forgotten that he was in it. Because he is, the, of the kind of eight or so main characters, he's he's not in it a huge amount. No. What, what he we, is in, though, is... Oh, he's really good in it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Like it's, But that's why I had kind of forgotten about him, because his character isn't one of, say, like of the eight, there's probably four that the film really focuses on. Yeah. But before we dive into the meat of it, shall we go for a summary? Yes. As as is tradition. As is tradition. Not wanting to be outdone by Doctor Strange, Sorcerer Wong creates his own multiverse, bringing together Captain America, Shang-Chi's aunt, the Scarecrow, Scorpion, Moira McTaggart, Mac from that giant shark movie, that Jason dude from Ballers, and the disembodied voice of Mary Magdalene. Together they must stop the evil science advisor Brian Cox and save the world from a scientifically accurate problem with the sun. En route they hear a distress call from the previous mission captained by Green Lantern Sinestro. Now the crew must decide whether they should risk the mission or carry on ahead. You really got them all in there, didn't you? Oh, I tried. Yeah. <laughs> I tried. When I realised how many of them were in superhero films and, and the likes. Yeah. The only one that I really struggled with there was the voice of Icarus. Yeah, um, she does a lot of voice work. 
Yeah, but I thought I like I like the disembodied voice of Mary Magdalene because <laughs> she played Mary Magdalene, so it counts. Yeah. But yeah, no. So uh, a non-ridiculous summary is basically yeah, it's, it's a crew, a small crew, off to reignite the sun, essentially. Yeah, basically Brian Cox, who if you don't know who that is, he's a physicist from the University of Manchester. He works in CERN. He's, he's he's kind of uh, uh, he'd be very similar to Carl Sagan. Yeah, they, he's what they call a science communicator. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. I would love to go to just sit in on one of his lectures. He does actual lecture tours and, as well. And not that they need the plug, but my, uh, he was the keyboard. No, 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 not that, not plugging D Ream. Yes, he was the keyboard player in D Ream. Things well. can only get better. So he's a rock star um, physicist. But no, my my own journey with podcasting kind of started with Brian Cox because I started listening to The Infinite Monkey Cage, which is a BBC Radio 4 show, show that he hosts with Robin Ince. Yeah. And they do a podcast version of it as well. Like This was kind of where I became first aware of, of him because when they were doing press and stuff for this, he did appear and give interviews and... Yeah, there was a big thing they kind of pimped at the time was like, oh, you know, like, this, this film has the real science. Yeah. This film has the... And there are bits that aren't real science, but it's a sci-fi film, so... Yeah, they, they tried as best as they could. <laughs> yeah. But it basically, the Brian Cox, if you, if you have the DVD, there's a director's commentary on it by him. And he was saying when he got the script, it just said that the sun was dying. And he then goes on to explain in detail how that can't happen for five billion years. Or won't happen for five billion years. years. So he basically took the script with him back to CERN and was like, how do we fix this? Yeah. And, and, they <laughs> and use came across a paper talking about these things called... Cue balls. Cue balls. I wrote it down. I, that's totally not spelt right, but... No, it's it's, it's the letter Q, Q and balls, ball. Which are like heavy foreign elements they're, that... They're like co- theoretical particles that might be hanging around from after the Big Bang. But they could theoretically, theoretically disrupt the sun. With a, well, a much larger sun than ours. But they were like, that's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> if it could fuck it with could a work. neutron star, it might fuck with a normal star. And the way of, of solving this problem would be to put in something and like basically... Introduce other elements that would... Disperse it, disperse, kick it out of the yeah. sun. That's basically the plot of this is there are eight astronauts and scientists on, on a, a long, oh, long ass mission. 16 months in. Well, they're 16 months in when we get there. There's no real time frame. a week, two weeks. Yeah, it seems like they're 16 months in at the start of the film and there's, yeah, maybe a couple of weeks that the film takes place over. You really don't get a sense of time in this, which is the same. And it's actually brought up very early in the film when there's an altercation. Yeah. When they, and they're discussing time and how you can get used to anything. But at the same time, (laughs) you can't. Yeah. They have this massive payload that's the size of Manhattan. They're basically, they say it in the film, they're eight astronauts strapped to the back of a bomb flying toward into the sun. Yeah, which I think is probably Probably a little reference to I can't remember which astronaut said it, but oh, being strapped to the top of a rocket. Yeah, you know, at launch, realizing that he was strapped to you know however many million tons of rocket fuel built by the lowest bidder. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's a again a simple story. Yeah. <laughs> a very fairly simple plot, like like what we want to cover. Not too many characters, again, seems to be a, a trend among the films that we cover. I think it's but easier, it's cleaner. It is, and I really like in this that the only characters we ever see, with the exception of the very, very end, are the eight astronauts. Yes. Plus one. Yeah. Sinestro that I mentioned earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and they are given fairly quick and simple introductions. 
but they do feel like fleshed out characters and I think that's partly because they were given extremely detailed backstories and the, those backstories were given not just to the actors but to like the set builders and the costuming department and things like that and from what I read kind of in trivia and things like that it seems like the the actors very much incorporated those backstories into how they played the characters like because yeah, you can see that through it One so in- your kind of core cast are Kaneda who is the captain yeah who is currently in well most recently he, he was, was Scorpion in the Mortal Kombat movie which yes. was not so good no <laughs> not so good <laughs> very pretty looking but beyond that not so good. he was great as Scorpion though yeah but I mean that's just because he kicked ass I've forgotten the actor's name but that's me and, and actors and actresses yeah. I'm never really good at, at actors names so we'll circle back to him he's, he's the captain he's the captain he's doing his thing you've got Searle that's Cliff Curtis. Who's magnificent and you should watch him in everything he's ever been in. Oh, uh, yeah. Most Another notably, great Kiwi he's, actor. He's, he's a whale rider. He plays her father in Whale Rider. He was in Once Were Warriors. Yeah, Whale Rider, I think, is what got him the role in this. Yeah, he's brilliant. Watch him. But, but yeah, he plays the... The psychologist and his yeah. journey in this is particularly fun. Yeah, we can talk about it a little bit because it's one of the things that happens early on in the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he gets the character note that I have for him is the psycho psychologist. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes a little bit. Not full on crazy, but he's, he's got issues. He's got a touch of the space madness. <laughs> he's got not the space confu- crazies. Not to be confused with ocean madness. The deep sea willies. <laughs> It's a suppository. <laughs> yeah, there may be a few Futurama references through it. All sorts of this. Um, Kappa, who's played by Killian Murphy, and he's the physicist on board. Yeah. Um, Hiroyuki so he- Sonata. Thank you. So uh, basically, Kappa's only there because he's the only one who can work the bomb. Yeah, he designed the bomb, and, and he's there to work the bomb and work out all the... Make sure that that's his The maths thing. and the physics around the bomb going off correctly. You've got Icarus, who's the voice of the ship. Corazone, who's... Michelle um, Yeoh. She's the botanist. She just seems to... She cares about her plants. And, not. and her in particular was what... That was one of her... The, the, the not filmed backstory things yeah. for her was that she cared more for her plants than any of the crew on the ship. You can see that. And you that. can definitely oh, get yeah. that. She, she doesn't really care... And the one bit where she, the, the one bit where she's most upset in the film is over things that happen to her plants. Yeah. And that scene, she really like the that is she's distraught. Yeah. And like so, this really, would have been kind of like one of the first things I'd seen her in since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, and I mean she's still acting like mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, she she was Shang Chi's aunt in my joke somewhere. Yeah. So like, yeah, they're all still working right yeah. up to the, the day. Cassie, who is the pilot, who is Rose Byrne. Rose Burn. She is one of the people I would feel is probably most undercharacterized. Her and Trey and are very undercharacterized yeah, in this film. You I don't think really understand what she's there for. Like her interactions most- with Kappa are a bit bizarre. There was going to be a sex scene between Ew, them, but Danny why? Boyle decided, no, Danny Boyle decided that he didn't want a sex scene in a sci-fi film, that it would just be weird. It would have been weird. Wouldn't have fit yeah. Totally. yeah, you get a bit of a vibe like that between them, but I suppose for her, I think she's supposed to be the like more emotional, empathetic one of the ship because there's a lot of philosophical issues in this film around oh, sacrificing one the, the for the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few various, there's a yeah, lot there's of a couple moral, of trolley problems and stuff there's a lot of like moral questioning going on and she you know. always puts forth the more humanist emotional empathetic arguments yeah. and you, you I think, she's the one who does have the 
more uh, visible reactions as well when they find out certain events later on. Mm. She's the one who becomes visibly upset. Yeah, so I think she is, whereas the various characters, you could almost look at them as certain aspects of personalities. Yeah. She is the more emotional side of her personality. Sarah is 100% the logic. He's very much the devil's advocate, especially when they come to a very pivotal scene in it where they have to make a huge decision. Yeah, well, I think we, we can talk about that scene yeah. without being too spoilery a little bit further. Yeah. But yeah. That scene in particular, he you is, really get Cyril is very much playing devil's advocate and the points he makes are 100% valid. Yeah. He just does not want to be the one to make the decision. <laughs> yeah, he's the logical one. Mace then, as we Evans being is. a psychologist he makes a really really like persuasive argument he knows exactly how to play it it's, oh yeah it's one of the best scenes in the film and that's why I say we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> save that for a little bit later but yeah no Mace is I think one of the best characters in the film Chris as Evans well. Chris Evans' character he's the ship's engineer it's hilarious he's... at the start because he looks like when they find Stephen Amell in the first season of Arrow and he's got like all the shaggy hair <laughs> yeah he has a bit of that where it was obvious bad wig and they just stuck some pubes to his face. <laughs> That's kind of what he looked like. They like they just couldn't wait on Chris Evans. Like at that time he wasn't manly enough to just go and a beard would appear. They just gave him pube face. They just gave him kind of pube face. Hey, those, and a, and those a, are America's pubes. <laughs> but <laughs> so because yeah. we need, we like skinny young Chris Evans to me is really funny looking. I don't know. I don't think he's that. He's not that dissimilar to modern day Chris Evans. Benedict Wong looks so different. That's Benedict, a baby. That's a baby Benedict. He's brilliant in this though because I've I've really only seen him as Wong recently. Um, yeah, apart from his fantastic cameo in What We Do in the Shadows. Yes, <laughs> as the necromancer. Yeah, so the to fucking see him- scouse necromancer. <laughs> And he's brilliant in this because he's everything else he's like quite confident and Yeah, in this he's he's real like anxious and self conscious. Yeah. Like that's the kind of the side of the personality that, that he portrays most. And the thing to remember in this as well is they're the crew of the Icarus two. Yeah. The implication being that the best of the best went on the first one. Yeah, well, Brian Cox makes that <laughs> gag, and it was something that I hadn't considered um, in the, yeah. in the commentary. He's like, he says about Kappa that he's the foremost physicist in the world, and he goes, "Well, actually, probably the second foremost physicist because I'd guess the first one would have been on Icarus One." Yeah, so they're all basically the second best at what they do. Well, as well. if it's seven or eight years later, they, yeah, but yeah, still, but still, they especially for but them also to have worked be, on it. It will be something that would be ever present in their mind. Is is what went wrong on that first mission. Yeah, because they don't know at all. They're, they end up flying into a dead zone where there's no radio transmissions back due to interference with the sun and they just don't know what happened. Yeah, they know They know that the Icarus 1 made it that far and after that, nobody knows. Yeah, they made it to the edge of the dead zone and... Yeah. Have we gotten through all the characters? No, well, Trey, Trey, as I said, is is the kind of... He's very self-conscious and yeah, very... Yeah, he's the navigator. He's the mathematician. Yeah, well, it's never said, but I reckon he's the navigator because yeah. of what he does yeah. throughout. And then, oh, Harvey, of course, the second in command oh, and comms officer. Who nobody really cares about and he's no, just there to be a wimp. He's the... Where Kappa is a bit of a science coward, for lack of a better... Like Kappa he, just... Kappa kind of hides behind the science. Yeah, Kappa like when, doesn't want to when be he has there. To, he's 
anytime you see him in the group shots, he's always kind of removed from them. Yeah, and you get the impression that he he kind of just would have preferred if he could have just made and designed the bomb and had somebody else go off and do the yeah. work. And that is kind of a character trait, and it's it's a source of uh, a lot of tension between him and Mace throughout it. Yeah, is that Capo on kind of own up to things and and yeah, you know, he's not a man of action, but yeah, he he comes across as like somebody who kind of hides behind the science. You know, he won't make a decision until he's absolutely sure well, he has the, whole the right thing. answer. You see that later on when they do have to make the, this pivotal decision. Mm. And he, they say, oh, what's your decision? He said, he says straight away, it's not a decision, it's a guess. Yeah. You know, he's not comfortable doing that. He doesn't want to stand by that because it's a guess. He yeah. doesn't want to be the reason that this all goes wrong if it's a guess. Yeah. And he, can't, it, he doesn't have a so, solid yes mm, or no. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't call him a carrot, but he does, he kind of, he, hides behind the data a little yeah. bit whereas Harvey is exposed to just be a straight up coward in this film yeah. he's, he's the comms officer he's, he's bizarre as Harvey you never really get a kind of handle on who he is he's supposed to be second in command but he capitulates to everybody else at some point yeah he's he's snide and snarky and he's got a touch of the rimmers without <laughs> the arrogance yeah and uh, yeah he's, he's definitely Rimmer, a bit of a rimmer, rimmer if Oh my god, if Rimmer and Blackadder from the very first season, who's a snivelling little shit, got together, that's <laughs> yeah. who Harvey is. Yeah, no, Harvey, and he's fine at, at kind of the start of the film, and you just see him as what he's supposed to be, the communications officer, he's the one who comes across the distress signal, Yeah. but later on in the film, there's a few of his actions where you're like, god damn it dude, just stop being such a carrot. Yeah, like, relax, will you? But that's pretty much everybody. So this is the, the eight main characters. Some of them are more fleshed out than others. Harvey is one of the ones who's not particularly fleshed out. You don't really care, though. Trey. You know, I, I don't think you're supposed to like Harvey anyway. Yeah. Like, he's not a character that you would necessarily root for in any film. He's very similar to, say, your man, the corporate douchebag in Alien 2. Yeah. He's that kind of, you know, your man who barricades himself oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in with the, go- um, yeah, he's him. That's, that's I what think, he would do in that situation. I think he's there to kind of contrast Kappa's journey. Yeah. Because Kappa starts off a bit more like that. Reserved and. Yeah, and, and not meek. self-serving, but. Just meek and like, he doesn't want to really be involved with them, even though they've all been stuck on this. It's a long enough ship. Doesn't matter. You can't get away from people. <laughs> Like, yeah, where yeah he he views it as a not like a punishment, but you know what I mean. It's a it's, trial. It's a trial. It's something that has to be endured. Whereas all the rest of them seem to, to view it, particularly Mace, as a duty. Mace very, and that's much why there's is, a lot of the, yeah. So, Mace, I think, is supposed to have a very like militaristic background. He was like brought up to believe, you know, mm. he follows orders. He has his objective. He will see that objective through. He understands that what they're doing is for the greater good. The greater good. The greater good. You know, and and he doesn't see the point in deviating from this plan to save their planet to satisfy what is essentially curiosity. What I really like about Mace is that he starts off the film as, you know, his kind of defining moments at the start. He has a bit of a fight with Kappa. I love the way that is filmed with the cat because the camera's right up in the face when the mm. two of them are punching the heads off each other. Yeah, they they have the, the fight and then a few minutes later you have Mace being real like, no, we're not changing the plan. And he's kind of set up as this almost a dick character, but as the film goes on, it's like, 
Oh no, he's not a dick. He's just he's a guy who's willing to make the hard calls if he has yeah. to. And there's one or two points where he, he like he makes a hard call, and then everybody's like, "No, you can't do that." And he turns around and calls the captain. Is like, "Captain, back me up!" And immediately the captain's like, "No, that's the right call." Yeah, the ship. Yeah, the captain mentions it at one point that the ship's objective, our crew. Yeah, the crew are expendable. The, 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 the ship objective is not. Is not. Yeah. <laughs> Most important thing is and the And that, that's a point that's raised in a couple of times during discussions is that they, by virtue of signing up for it, are expendable. Yeah. In light of in light of the mission, in light of it, their lives are expendable. Oh, yeah. And that is, it's it's not so much the trolley problem of, of do we kill one or, or kill five or whatever. It's it's more, well, look, it's obvious. You know, if, if any of these eight people have to die or all of them have to die to save the world, well, that's fine. Yeah. But it's it's not so much about the philosophy of whether or not we should. It's the toll of what happens if we do. Yeah. Particularly in the scene later on when there's four of them sitting around deciding what they should do with another they've character. Had, yeah, that's followed. They've had an incident and they've lost a lot of their oxygen reserves. And which becomes its whole thing of do they all you know do you all suffer or do four have a swift death? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, I like. Do the, you want to choose or go out slowly? Yeah, there's. I mean, and there's nothing massively meaty philosophical wise in this, but I do like what they do with it. And, yeah. and there is a lot about isolation and a lot about that. Obviously, like the needs of one outweighing others. Yeah. But as I say, the, the effort or the focus is more on the aftermath and the actual decision. Yeah. But they are, they're all really believable characters and I think part of that is the fact that they had to live together. Yeah, Danny Ball <laughs> kind of tortured them a wee bit and yeah, made them all made live them, in made them extremely live together. close quarters. So you do get the feeling that they are irritated by each other in the opening when you're introduced to them originally and they're sitting down to eat. Yeah. Uh, well, in the, op- the opening of this movie is just stunning. Oh yeah, I mean, visually this film is fucking amazing you're introduced to the Icarus one and you think it's the sun until the camera pivots and it's the giant sun shield yeah we have a projector and a massive screen to watch it on and it's still not enough like <laughs> yeah I kind of wish I'd seen this in the cinema I never did but find the biggest screen you can to watch this on yeah it deserves it it definitely deserves um, it and it's this big beautiful gold sun shield as it pans around it then you get the Icarus behind it hiding this long thin structure yeah that's hiding behind this massive sun shield with this huge bomb at the very front of it this big cube thing yeah and it's all just very subtly lit with blue yeah no it's a beautiful shot and you get that then everything's very long and narrow and claustrophobic Mm. and even their cabins are everything's kind of on top of each other yeah no that's one of the things they do really well in this is the sense of like claustrophobia and isolation the only open really open spacious room is the observation room which is at the very very front of the ship and it's actually in the sun shield Mm. and they can observe the sun and it's filtered down and it opens you get to see that straight away with Cyril and he's sitting yeah looking at the sun and it's a beautiful image of the sun yeah, and it's at 2% brightness yeah and he asks for it to go up to 4% and, and the computer's like no because mm, it'll, it'll cause irreparable damage <laughs> You can go to 3.1 for 30 seconds. Yeah. And it blind well, not blinds it, but it's this overwhelming. Yeah. Since, like, it's hard to describe it. Well, the way he describes it, when he, after that, when he comes and he sits down with the crew for their meal and he's talking about, somebody says, oh, is it like being in an isolation tank? And he's like, well, no. Like, that's the thing when you're in darkness. Well, he was saying he had tested them before coming on the mission, mm. isolation tanks. Yeah. And he says that in an isolation tank, you are floating 
living in darkness. You're separate from it, whereas the light completely envelops you. Yeah. And you become a part of it, and it becomes a part of you. And, and you it's get all very... that in the visuals with him in the sunroom with the, the sun at 3.1%, mm. and he's holding his hand out, and you can't really see. Yeah, it's very hard to make it any. It. Everything's very blinding. Edges. Yeah. Everything's blurred. And he's almost panicking. It's real heavy breathing. It's this overwhelming mm. flood of light, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and it is. And then almost when it when the filter comes down, it's almost like a euphoric release for him. Then he gets his. It looks like he almost gets this like adrenaline rush from and, it. And the way he's talking about it to everybody it's, afterwards is yeah. very much like, "Oh my god, this amazing new drug I tried. You have to try it." Is <laughs> <laughs> definitely the vibe. You have get you ever tried him. ayahuasca? It's kind of like that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he does talk about it like almost as like a, it's this spiritual thing. Yeah, and and there are elements of kind of spiritualism and well faith worked in throughout this yeah I know they could have been played up more that was one of the things was that apparently in the script Alex Garland had a lot more references to kind of God and atheism and Danny Boyle just decided to downplay it a little bit yeah I think you can't downplay it entirely given the ending no but given Event Horizon well not the ending the third act plays a lot with yeah, and similar there is, themes. It's a smart idea to to move away from that. Yeah, uh, there is definitely there's a lot of similarities between this and Event Horizon, so it's probably better for him to stick more strictly to sci-fi. Yeah, as opposed to, to straying into the horror. And again, especially with the third act. Yeah, as it is, you really could have gone into kind of like, oh no, we're just copying Event Horizon. It is. Uh, the design of the ship is you've you've got a brilliant scene with Corazon coming to give a report to Canada, and you got as a sense of the scale of the ship because she's on a little, she's on little scooter. scooter. Yeah, you see the little scooters a couple of times throughout it. Going up and down this massive central gantry that even though it's it's really long, she's still ducking so she doesn't hit her head. Yeah, there's... There, it is, the whole, the whole ship feels very claustrophobic even when they're sitting in like the main mess around the table. It's still very low. It actually, that whole central table area where they're eating yeah that to me looked exactly like the crew setup for the the Nostromo oh I died <laughs> very intentional like I, I was expecting like if all I needed was somebody getting flung on a table in there yeah there are a lot of visual references to things in that and that well. was that was a British production as well so it's always nice to see that mm. that put into it the, the world building in this is just it's fantastic because it's done so well throughout the visuals and then just throughout little things like you get an immediate sense of isolation because you only have these eight characters yeah you keep seeing shots of outside of the ship where it's literally just the ship and black and the sun yeah you and, can't even see stars and within the first 10 minutes of the film they... it's very quiet as well oh yeah it's, it's just ambient noise it's very noticeable when they go to Corazon when she's in the plant room mm. so the big green area it's dripping you can hear the fans going mm. and that's where it's noticeable because everywhere else it, it's pin drop quiet yeah and that's it, it all kind of makes sense that like if it, it's it's this massive ship but only eight people on it so it's not yeah. going to be very noisy so you would when you went into somewhere like the plant room that would be more lively <laughs> just because of fans and water and things yeah. like that it would be a much it would seem a much noisier room but there yeah there's all these little like kind of intricate details like the the ship itself there, it, there seems to be an awful lot of exposed not exposed wiring everything's not like nice shiny panels like the Starship well, they, Enterprise or anything like that because it was yeah the earth was dying they put up nearly all the earth resources into the first one that failed mm. that was seven years prior they've basically gone they've been out in space for what we'll say two years at this point yeah well, it's like well 16, 16 months, months. 
So they've had to scramble to make this one. Yeah. And the point is made that this is their last chance. They've mined all of Earth's fissible materials to make this bomb. Yeah. Which is the size of Manhattan. No, I, I do like the point that's like made they that don't have all, of, all of Earth's fissible materials. Yeah, they don't have a plan B. They are a plan B. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> But that all that, that all weighs works on in, them oh as I know well. like, that, but that that it, it makes sense within the world of the the film that yeah it would have been a rush job but also then it kind of helps the the crew are always kind of the crew always seem like they're just one bad comment away from fighting with every other member of the crew for yeah. a lot of the film and yeah it's like the, 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 the raw nerves of them are reflected in well, the, the exposed the, wirings of the ship kind of thing the fight that breaks out between Kappa and Mace is because they're which coming, one the first one <laughs> just the example of the tensions rising um, yeah. is because they are coming to the edge of the dead zone and they won't be able to send messages back mm. And Kappa takes an hour to record his message, which means the winds have raised, have come up too high. The solar winds are too high now. Yeah. There's too much interference and Mace can't send his message. And I don't blame Mace. I'd be fucking pissed too. Oh, yeah. And, and if I've been stuck really in a tin selfish. can with somebody for 16 fucking months, yeah, I'm probably going to punch the head off who, you at that point. Somebody who really doesn't seem like they want to be there. Yeah. Somebody who probably understands best on the ship the maths of how little time they have to send these messages back and forth is the one who spends an hour recording his message. And especially if he's second to last person to record his message, you'd be like, no, you'd be like, you go in and send your message. I don't know what I want to say yet. And I don't want, yeah. I don't want time to run out. So I'll go, I'll go last. So yeah. No. And you do get to see Kappa's message. And it's like, really, really? You spent an hour doing this? And he this? even, he deletes it at one point. Does he? Yeah. I'm pretty oh, sure you see him go, because you can see like review, delete, send in reverse writing on the screen. And I think at one point he goes to hit delete and then you see him recording something else. Oh, he's a bit but of a yeah, Rodney, I'd be pissed off he? with that. Viva Rodney McKay and his thoughts. Leadership. <laughs> also, I find that was very bad uh, design that they only have one comm station. But again, rush job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, probably better that they put some time and put the Earth Room simulator thing in. Oh, before we go on to the Earth Room thing, it's, it's one of the few scientific inaccuracies that I will point out is that where that happens, where they have the, the cutoff point for radio contact is yeah. before they pass Mercury. Yeah, well, they point that and, out as well. In the oh, yeah, Brian, Brian Cox is like, like, I, I kind of did this bit's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't listen to me, this bit's wrong. That... <laughs> um, yeah, we, we sent a mission to we Mercury. We sent missions to Mercury and we can communicate to and from Mercury with ease and have been doing so since the late 70s. And it's just worth pointing out because that is I, fucking cool. In fact, cool. the last mission to Mercury, which was called Messenger, only ended in 2015. Mm. Uh, it's been 10 years out there and deorbited much like Juno did a couple of years ago in a beautiful, tragic day. Uh, sw- swan dive into the atmosphere. Swan dive into the atmosphere, went out like a badass. But yeah, back to the kind of the intricacies of the ship and just how they, they make sense. The Earth Room as well. Yeah. It's great because it's like, yeah, obviously they'd want... It's a real low budget deck, but a fucking works well i mean if it's I an was accurate holodeck yeah if i was there i'd want something like that yeah <laughs> i definitely want something like that and it's a it's a v- really visually cool shot when it switches from the the ocean view to the forest view yeah it's just done really well i also it, there's some, there's something so creepy about cyril in that shot which shot when mace is in the earth room because he's had to punch up with yeah kappa yeah. and they're like right you're strung out two hours in the earth room yeah chill out and cyril when he's when mace is asking him to put it back to the waves because he finds the waves most soothing yeah 
And Cyril just stands a little bit too close and his face is a little bit in the glow of it. And it's like, Cyril, what are you doing? I think that's just a little bit more towards Cyril's degradation. Yeah, Cyril's starting starting to lose it a wee bit. Mm. But yeah, no, I just, I love how all these things would fit. And like, yeah, you would have an earth room on a ship like that. Yeah, you just need to see things that... Yeah, remind you of home. And in fact, that was one of the things in the Brian Cox commentary where he says that the one thing that Russians found most helpful for Well, they're the ones who stay in space the longest. They're the ones who have all the long-term data on it. And the one thing that they found was most helpful for morale was one-to-one calls with family back home. So obviously that that connection back to Earth is is most important. And just to somebody who knows you and just to talk to somebody else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, just a different... you know, I get the whole you just need to talk to somebody else thing as well. So, yeah, that makes Mace's frustrations and not even being able to just send something, just being able to say something to somebody and send it. Yeah, and like their concern, the crew's concern with what happened to the Icarus 1. You can see it when you look into the film. Obviously, there's the obvious part. They're getting like, to the point, the same point where the Icarus 1 would have been where things could have maybe started to go wrong. They don't know if it was an engine malfunction, if something didn't work, if the crew, like... This is where they're starting to get the speculation and the tension is building up. Well, maybe did somebody snap at this point? Yeah. And then the fact that they actually are find... starting to... Well, the fact that they find the Icarus. Yeah. And they, they hear the distress call makes it even more present in their mind of, of, well, the ship's still floating out there and now we found it and we know how close they were to finishing their mission. Yeah. What actually... That's, what did They've actually wrong? addressed a couple of things throughout the film. You've got when Corazon goes to give her report to Kanada and Kanada's in the sunroom. Yeah, he's and asking he's about oxygen. Doing same thing that Cyril was doing. Yeah, he's also staring at the sun. And she even says, oh, did you you come in here on Cyril's recommendation? And it takes him a couple of seconds to kind of blink and refocus on her. It takes him a couple of seconds to even acknowledge her. She's like, Captain, hello. He's gotten lost in it Mm. as well, in the light bathing, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, And she says, well, you know, she gives him the report that says they have more than enough enough oxygen to make there and a quarter the way back. Yeah. So she doesn't think that oxygen reserves were the problem with the Icarus 1. Yeah, and you see hey, you see the captain watching tapes of the previous captain. And yeah. it's just like he's studying every trying word, to just see. trying to parse out. Well, that's where you get the brilliant thing where they're describing the meteor shower that hit the Icarus 1 mm. and it was no one bigger than a raindrop. Yeah. Punching tiny holes and it says they lost like three or four of the panels. Yeah. And then the last line is, oh, Nas, if you'd seen it, it was beautiful. Yeah. Which, yeah, uh, like, it probably was, but probably not the last thing you should say on your report back to NASA. No, especially when you're giving, like, you're supposed to be the commander. This is mentioned, Brian Cox actually brings this up on the commentary. That's probably not the the wisest choice of words for a captain on an uh, extremely serious mission. Like, you <laughs> yeah. don't want him to be getting fascinated by things. Like, yes, you can think to yourself, like, yeah. it is beautiful, but it was also, you know, high chance of, of destroying everything. Yeah, you just said four panels were destroyed. Tell us more about that and less about how pretty it looked yeah. while they were being destroyed, please. But he keeps <laughs> focusing in then on his eyes. 
there's yeah, there's a lot of focusing on eyes and but, shots that look like eyes in yeah, this film. Like when they're in the sunroom and it focuses on their eyes behind the sunglasses and you can see the little lights dancing on them. Yeah, and those little those little spots that are reflective of how the bomb activates later on in the film yeah. as well. It's like when you watch Dust Motes. Yeah. It's that kind of effect, that little mm. that little sparkly, glittery. But it's also the same thing you get from being sun-dazzled as well. Yeah. You get them in the corners of your vision and it just is reoccurring throughout it. Yeah, no, there is. There's a lot of, like, kind of duality in, in images used yeah. like that. Like, the sunspots then compared to the, the bomb crisp. at the end. Yeah. But, yeah, no, the, visual... the bomb is beautiful. Oh, that's, that's the... The bomb is so insane much, looking. So much of the visuals in this are just beautiful and not... Not just like the CGI is really, really good, but it's not just the CGI. Like some the way some of the shots are put together yeah. is beautiful. The the set design is beautiful, particularly the bomb. The bomb is is crazy looking. It now is... it's no core room from Event Horizon. No. But it is very cool. It's vast. Um, you never get a full sense of the scale of it. Yeah, and it has this because weird. It is just it's immense. It it has this weird like tesseract vibe to it. Yeah, it's, of it's being cube. like a, a four it, dimensional cube. It's yeah, um, it's it's a giant Rubik's cube essentially. Yeah, that's re- realistically that's what it looks like, as if it was like some massive Rubik's cube, and you can get into the middle of it. As but yeah, well. the way the outer walls are designed, it almost feels like it's a cube that's somehow inside itself. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very kind of trippy looking, and then particularly in the third act and the very end of the film, it gets even trippier looking. Oh yeah, but yeah, no, it is the it's it's the ignition. Just cool looking. There's a point in it where he tests the ignition spark for it, mm. and if you've ever been to New Zealand and been to Waitomo Caves it looked like the glowworms yeah just yeah. all these little tiny lights very very similar if you've watched The Expanse to the way the protovirus moves when it's taking oh, the over the protomolecule when it takes over, over Eros. Eros yes yes it had very much had that kind of look to it as well yeah the, the visuals are just so cool and there's so many just little things that, that you can pick up on as you watch through like one of the things that I noticed was that as the film progresses as they get closer to the sun when you cut to the out, there's a lot of outside shots of the ship yeah and the closer you get to the sun the less black the space around the ship no, seems it becomes orange. and the more orangey it seems and the darker things get inside the ship whereas at the start the ship is very brightly lit yeah and I just I like that contrast as the film goes on from the outside going from dark to light and the inside going from light to dark is just cool yeah <laughs> and the um, how did we say we'd refer to it the tell me what you see oh, shot tell me what you see the tell me what you see shot is just it's one of the most beautiful shots in cinema of probably of the last there is a shot I can reference that's extremely similar to it what Riddick in Riddick in Riddick when they're on when he's trying to escape from the prison planet Mm. and he's rescued by the other Furian who then walks out into the daylight this is about a million times better but no but before (laughs) before that shot happens when they're climbing up the cliff wall trying to outrun the sunlight and it's coming along and it's setting things on fire yes this one is is a better version of it still a million times better but <laughs> yeah, no, that it is similar, it, yeah. yeah. But it is. It's it's one of the best shots of the movie. It's so beautiful. And it's an incredibly tense scene. Oh yeah. But I I have nothing but praise for the soundtrack for this. Even if you don't watch the movie, just go and find the soundtrack and listen to it. Yeah, because as as incredibly tense as the scene is, it's also incredibly serene. And the music is so poignant, and it captures the beauty of the moment. Yeah, it is. It it, it, yeah, it that, honestly, it, if the hairs on the back of your neck don't li- lift up listening to the music, there's some actually yeah, something the, wrong the, with you. The what do, <laughs> the what do you see moment 
and and if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what we're talking yeah. about. And if you haven't, we're not spoiling anything. But yeah, the what do you see moment is just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It really is. Again, like we have, we have a projector, and it's still not enough to appreciate. Oh yeah, the no, artwork I, I, that I, went I into. I, the, I wish I could have seen this in the cinema. Yeah, because that is. I mean, there's there's loads of pretty shots of like the shield and of the ship, but that one in particular just blows the rest of them out of the water. Yeah. It really does. And um, paired with Brian Murphy's soundtrack. Oh yeah, Brian just, Murphy's soundtrack is fantastic. And you don't know, you know, it, but you know it because a lot of his music has been used. Obviously, he's worked with Danny Boyle and Alex Garland on a lot of their films. Mm. Most notably. He did 28 Days Later, which gave us In the House in a Heartbeat, which has been used in loads of stuff. Yeah. But in this, Adagio and D minor. Also been reused in a load of stuff. That and The Surface of the Sun are the two main tracks from this mm. that would have been used in a lot, but it just, oh, so, so, so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the, the most negative things that I kept seeing lobbied at the film was all are based around the third act, so we should probably talk about it a as, as non spoilery as we can. I understand, you know, where people's problems with the third act come from because there is a bit of a tonal shift, but we were talking about it before we came I, on. Sorry, I just had a fucking epiphany here about the third act when you talk about that. Third act can also, if you don't want to explain it away as there being an actual person there, mm. third crew member syndrome, which was noted in Antarctic Explorers uh, of there being the feeling of such severe isolation that oh, you yeah, start yeah, to yeah. hallucinate another person being there. Yeah, 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 I know. Yeah, I know. I know about third man syndrome, but that tends to gen- they generally tend to be a benevolent feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas it wouldn't really work in this. No. Yeah, you could put that viewing on it. No, I mean, I'm... I'm until, happy- the, until there is it, a point where it is confirmed um, mm. and then it all... It is a, a tonal shift, yes. But, but it's not at such a hard left-hand turn because if you look at it, the clues are there. You've exactly. got Searle and his this light bathing obsession, and you can start to see the things are starting to unravel, and the tensions are getting to the point are are starting to boil over because they can't communicate back. One, they yeah, are you, entirely on their own at this point. Yeah, like I we talked about the subtler aspects of the ship and the isolation, and yeah, there are subtle hints towards this other character in the third act. Yeah, and what like yeah, because what happened to him is never explicitly explained. <laughs> but if you pick up on these clues, it's quite well, if you look at Searle and Searle's journey through this, yeah, you can kind of see where it's going to culminate. As much as the character annoyed people, there is a very definitive visual style change in the third act as well, which also pissed off a lot of people. But again, I, I'm for it. I, I but, don't mind it. I quite like it. I like the fact that you never, it's never 100% focused on. It's always blurry, like you've just been looking at the sun yeah it's it's got that you know when you you've got sunspots going on yeah and it does make it very panicky and it does just to go back to the story element of it for a second we did say before we came on air that like yeah if you were to remove this story element that people have problems with where the fuck would you go with it there's yeah. not a lot else you could do unless you just replace what happens with that character with, with another character yeah the, the most um, obvious one in that being Troy yeah and that's kind of you do think it's gonna go gonna go yeah they, there is kind like of a, that a, a bit of a bait and switch there but the only thing that I would really have to say negative about Third Act myself is that it just that character does kind of just drop off <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit anticlimactic with with specifically with that character. But again, no, I I I do I really enjoy the third act and visually, yeah, the the blurriness I really enjoy. Mm. I love I like his introduction. And the the very end scene where things go a bit screwy makes yeah. sense if you pay attention to what Kappa has been saying earlier on about the payload delivery and basically being that close to the surface of the stud and the gravitational forces and at play makes going physics at. not work. Yeah, well, not quite, but But yeah. everything turns into a soup. Yeah, things go a bit screwy. Gravity <laughs> and things... time and space no longer exist as separate entities, but are a blob and yeah, spaghettification will occur. No, yeah, that's black that's holes. That's black holes. Yeah, it it's going to have, it's all have hy- an effect. And, it's all and, hypothetical because we, yeah, we just don't know what's going to happen under those pressures, temperatures, velocity. But to, to, to visually portray that is never going to be an easy job. And I think that Danny Boyle did a pretty damn good job. Yeah. It is, it is a bit of a, a tonal shift and a visual shift for the third act. I think the, it's set up adequately enough that it doesn't by any means ruin the film. No, no, all. and you get like that final um, couple of scenes in the payload. Yeah. If you don't like that, you've got the run up to that with the separation and the two shields and that whole bit of the mm. sun coming down. Oh yeah, but yeah, no, I just any of the and negative that, that little jump seat as well, yeah. like just oh. any of the negative stuff that I did see. It seemed to be people were like, oh yeah, the first two acts were fantastic and the third act was shite, and that's why like I couldn't find any reviews that were like this is just a bad film from start to finish. But it, I very I. 28 Days Later has a very similar kind of shift and pace to it, though, where the this first act is, is kind of confusion and... Yeah, and this... Like, set up. The and second, second act, act is a little bit slower. Survival, and then the third act is all the stuff. It's the all the action bit. Completely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's and not again, you him. have the whole like if and if you've not seen Twenty Eight Days Later, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil it for you now. That whole bit sequence in in the house and Harvey with Killian Murphy running around the place, yeah. and you don't know if he's a zombie or not. Mm. Like that, you can see those three acts being replicated in this. Yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah, the yeah. beach follows again a very similar kind of structure. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, basically, it's, anything written by Alex Garland. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not unlike Alex Garland and Danny Boyle to throw us a curveball in, in the third act. No, it, it's a, it's a pre-established part. Of of what they do this might just have been a bit too curvy for some people mm. but <laughs> so, I like it as well oh, yeah, no, so when you I. look at the tradition of old sci-fi like in Dark Star you've got the third ball, third act curveball which is the sentient bomb ah speaking of Dark Star <laughs> the character of Pinbacker is based on the character of Sergeant Pinback from Dark Star yeah. But the third act in that does go a bit off the wall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, it's, I, I don't agree with most of those reviews. It's just, yeah. it's the most common negative thing yeah. that gets shot at People Sunshine. Did, yeah. There's a lot you have to remember that it, it all seems like throwaway in the first two acts. Yeah. It, a lot of it is in the sci- in the scientific explanations and things like that. Mm. But once you kind of go, oh, fuck yeah, that's, oh yeah, they mentioned that. It makes sense. Yeah. Because I will say, you, this is a film you've watched a couple of times more film. than me. And you really really love it and I haven't watched it as many times but the more I watch it the more I do grow to love it and I it think it just yeah, becomes there is, really fascinating yeah there is there's a lot of subtle things in the characters and in the setups of plot points that yeah if you don't not that it's like a super smart movie or anything like that but yeah it just it could make that third act really like what the fuck if you don't catch some of the setups earlier on yeah no it's it's a really really fascinating film for me yeah no I do I really really enjoy it and like it does seem like they they put a shitload of effort into it between like like having all these extra backstories written and having 
the actors live together and sending them on like some astronaut well, training. It, and Danny like Boyle that. found it so exhausting to do that he swore he'd never do another sci-fi, which is, is quite a disappointment. Which but, is a fucking shame. But the only one that he's going to make, I'm I'm happy with it. Like he's going, oh, yeah. he was kind of. This was when he was really going for the Stanley Kubrick. I will do one in every genre. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything he does. Is, is damn good yeah like, I haven't seen all of his work but everything I've seen great. I've enjoyed yeah, yeah I mean everything I've seen of his I've really really enjoyed yeah and he definitely even the 20 in. what was it the 2012 Olympics Did, he, he choreographed that the London yeah what, the what? London opening <laughs> yeah that was him fair enough yeah. I didn't know that now yeah but um, yeah, no, just uh, oh, little... it was so funny because everyone was expecting it to be like train spotting or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all the little bits of attention to detail in this were just it. It all adds up. They're just the little things like using real sounds of space that he got from NASA. Yeah, you know. And... Um, also, another point about the the soundtrack is that it's not just um, I've forgotten his name, Brian Murphy. It's not just Brian Murphy. It's also Underworld. Yes, <laughs> which just makes all the difference and another another comparison between it and Event, Event Horizon, Horizon because that was also done as, with a, a, a dance orbital yeah with an orbital and a, a traditional composer yeah. whose name escapes me at the minute but it, 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 it you, you can hear it it's reflected in it really really well mm, no the soundtrack is great uh, no pretty much everything about this film is great I really really yeah. enjoy it's, it it's so sad I really do think it just got overshadowed by Slumdog Millionaire yeah, because I don't like. Also, you still I, hear about his other. You still hear about Twenty Eight Days Later. Yeah, you know what I mean. You still hear about his other films, and you still hear about some sci-fi films from back then. Like this was only two years before Avatar, and people still won't fucking shut up about Avatar. It's Fern Gully. Oh yeah, I mean we. De- it's knock off anything, Fern Gully. That is a hill I will die on. <laughs> anything we could say about Avatar <laughs> has been said before. <laughs> But, like, yeah, it's just, I do think it is underrated. I'm trying to think what came out that year as well, though, because I don't think at the time sci-fi was kind of king. No, they were still, I mean, like, Uh, District 9 was still a year or two away. Oh, no, I've just Googled it. It was a bad year. What? Okay, shoot. Uh, Well, Transformers. Of course, yeah. Yeah, something called The Invasion with Nicole Kidman. No idea. Garbage. Yeah. Uh, Ugh. I am legend. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. Uh, read the book, basically. Yeah. Spider-Man 3, the one yeah, with, with, with Emo right. Peter Parker. Emo Peter Parker. Uh, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. Also, Chris Evans was still. Yeah. Uh, 28 Weeks Later was in 2007 as well. Yeah, it was. What I, was, was in, I was in the cinema when that came out. That was later on uh, the year. That was around Halloween. So that's probably as well. Like, cause 28 <laughs> Cause Weeks some... would have gotten the bigger push, too. Resident Evil Extinction. AVP Requiem. That horrendous teenage mutant. So there was, like, there was a lot of like sci-fi schlock there. Remake of the Mist, Ghost Rider, Beowulf, Stardust, Planet Terror, Grindhouse. Yeah. Yeah. So this this is yeah this definitely wouldn't have been a year probably to to release a hard sci-fi film. Oh, which and I... Superman Doomsday, the DC animated one, came out this year as well. <laughs> so yeah, that that yeah, there wasn't much in the way of hard sci-fi films that, yeah. that year, was there? No, and it's it's quite surprising because Killian Murphy was like on on the way up. Like yeah, not that he's fallen down or anything like that, but no. this would have been during his rise because there would this was after he did the win the Chicks of Barley, which just got nominated for everything, won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Well, Batman Begins would have been yeah, well, two he, years before that. Yeah, but he got like Oscar nominated yeah. and stuff like that for the oh, yeah. Chicks of Barley because, you know, Oscar bait. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, I'm guessing it just it wasn't enough of a draw to get See, people in just on his name. Well, also, he did Red Eye. 
Which yeah, kind of I saw tanked. that. I saw that. That wasn't great. That kind of tanked, and I've actually not seen. I meant to watch the theatrical trailer for this because sometimes the trailers can tell you exactly why they didn't oh, this, do yeah, well. That's a very good point. Especially if you look at some of the like older trailers for like the eighties movies. The one for the Howling is brilliant. Mm. Sometimes the way they have the trailers cut together, you can kind of understand why they didn't work out as well as they did. Well, that was one of the big problems that Ravenous had. The trailer for Ravenous was just a a fucking joke. Yeah, whereas the problem they have now is they give away all the good bits in the trailer. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, I don't... I can't can't pinpoint why this film... I feel like this film should definitely be bigger, especially uh, like have a higher kind of regard among hard sci-fi films. I don't know why it doesn't. Maybe that third act thing just fucked off a lot of people. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it is very, very bizarre. Cause especially um, Killian Murphy now, obviously, in Peaky Blinders. Um, whenever people, I'm talking to people about it and, you know, they mention that they like him or whatever. And I'm like, oh, have you seen Sunshine? Yeah. It's always a no. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even myself, like I, I, I slept on it for a while. Yeah. Even after you said, oh, we need to watch this. It took me a good year or two to actually sit down and watch it. Yeah. No, I'm a huge, huge fan of this film. I love it. There's something about this film that just, it just gets me. No, it is. It's a great, it's a great little film. It really is. And one of the higher budgets of the films that we've covered probably. Yeah. Um, like 40, 50 million budget, I think. Yeah. But yeah, no, really, Money well really spent. enjoyable film. It looks beautiful. Even it's a, what, 10, 11 year, no, older than that, 15 year old film now. 15 years. It yeah. still looks amazing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Really, really, really. Happy. Yeah. yeah the majority, of, the years, majority but... of that budget went on those effects and it, it shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really does. And Danny Boyle only let one VFX studio work on it. Yeah. Which makes a, um, a huge difference. And one co- studio work on it. Very cohesive. So yeah, so that he could keep a closer eye on it. And it meant, it meant post-production ran for really long, but it definitely stands to it because this film still looks fantastic. Yeah. Better even than some stuff that's coming out now. Yeah. I mean, okay, yeah, it definitely had a bigger budget, but still not like two, three hundred million budgets that we see getting thrown and stuff today that still has some garbage scenes in it. Yeah. Obviously, the Justice League mustache being... Oh, <laughs> can we not? Could, I would have been quite happy with the her suits, but Superman. <laughs> a mustache and Superman? Oh, I think that mustache was hilarious. Yeah, it was. It was, as he said himself on a Graham Norton interview, you know, he couldn't stand near playgrounds or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to give eight sweeties to kids. Yeah. Okay, but we're making pedo jokes, so maybe it's okay. time to wrap things hey, up. Hey, hey, I did not make it. He made it first himself. So yeah, but you brought it up. I know. You brought up the mustache. <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. true. Right, but we, as usual, have no fucking clue what we're going to cover next week. No, uh, we'll go and stare at the wall for a bit. Yeah, I mean, we only decided on this literally fucking yesterday. It was like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We've discovered that we uh, apparently want to cover only sci-fi, which uh, is a par- which is fine. Well, it was mostly horror and this yeah. is this is our first like strict sci-fi I think that we've covered or they're horror sci-fis uh, yeah. or comedy sci-fis or comedy horrors or comedy horrors or <laughs> one straight action film in the middle there for no particular reason other than it had Mark Dacascus in it oh yeah Mark Dacascus <laughs> but we'll be back with something next week guys that had a supernatural element with the old dragon lady a very small supernatural I want to do element. Brotherhood of the Wolf just for more Mark Dacascus um, we could maybe do Brotherhood of the Wolf in a Yay. while but we only did a werewolf episode a few weeks ago. That's the beast of Shabadon. Yeah, I know it is. But we only did a werewolf episode a few weeks ago. I know. But yeah, we'll be back with something. Something, something next week. Somewhere. Who knows somehow. what? Well, somewhere is here. And the somehow is... is same bad time, same bad channel. Yeah, and the somehow is, is via a series of tubes. Because that's what the <laughs> internet is. 
Wait, no. What do witches... Oh, witches use semen to make magnets. Yes, witches do use semen <laughs> to make magnets. And now we're just making bizarre references out of nowhere. So it's really time to go. <laughs> the internet so, is a series of two. <laughs> points if you get all or any of those references, guys. And we will catch you next week. But in the meantime, if you'd like to go back and listen to our previous episodes, you'll find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Pop Pat. Google Podcasts? Yeah, that place. And all the other places for podcasts. The things, the things things and the stuff. Under Monorants at the Movies. And we also covered all the episodes of The Boys and Diabolical for Amazon Prime. And that's Monorants The Boys. Find us on Twitter at RantsMono, Instagram, MonoRants underscore the underscore boys, and you can send your own rants to MonoRantsPodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, that's about it, guys. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. 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 We are Science Fiction Remnant. This is the Funny Science Fiction Podcast. We are the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. We are MonoRants. We are One Chord Level 2 Podcast. This is sci-fi.